I was going to tell any young coach something, man, don't ever think that there is anything you are doing now that somebody else hasn't done. I can't tell you how fortunate I was that I had the opportunity to be a janitor and to work for $3,000 a year. Believe that it helped mold me into who I am and what I wanted to accomplish. You know, kind of really helped drive me towards those things that I was looking to accomplish. I get tired of people saying the kids have changed, you know. Most of the time, kids haven't changed. The environment around our kids have changed. And that's changed how they look at things. And that's, that's changed what they are willing to do, maybe, or what somebody's forcing them to do. You know, if you get a kid that's been never been forced to do something he didn't want to do, he's not going to very likely want to do something he doesn't want to do. That's it. If you're not doing something that you don't want to do, you're not going to be very successful. Because the only way to be successful is to do something that other people aren't willing to do and do it more often than they're willing to do it. You're dialed in to the ABCA's Calls from the Clubhouse podcast, connecting our coaches with some of the best baseball minds in our game. Now here's your host, Jeremy Sheetinger. Broadcasting from the ABCA national office here in Greensboro, North Carolina, Welcome back or welcome to our Calls from the Clubhouse podcast, your baseball coaching source for certified audio gold and the place you come to connect with the very best baseball minds in our game. Episode 97 on deck for you today, as this episode each year signifies the start of a brand new drive towards our ABCA National Convention this year heading to Dallas, Texas this January, and we're going to welcome in this year's Division I National Champion and the very first speaker on the Friday at our show. A great conversation is waiting for all of us on the other side of this intro. Subscribe, review, and share. You hear these each week, but they are so important to the success of these shows. On your phone, your computer, your tablet, subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Leave us a review on there. Leave us a five-star rating. That helps more folks find our show. And then go the extra step and share this show. Throw the link into a text group. Send out a great tweet about what jumped out of the speakers to you. Make an effort to bring more of your coaching buddies into the world of podcasts. These are here for any and everyone who wants to learn and grow to be listened to on their time. So again, please keep helping spread the great word about these podcasts. Connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Find us at ABCA1945. Head over to our website, abca.org. If you're looking for more information about what our baseball coaching fraternity here is all about, you know, membership for the 2018-19 calendar year is open. And get ready for September 1st. That's the first day you're going to be able to register for the upcoming ABCA convention in Dallas, Texas. We're going to be there January 3rd through the 6th at the world's largest gathering of baseball coaches. It's four days of baseball heaven. It's waiting for all of us there in the Lone Star State. You've got the world's largest baseball trade show, divisional meetings, hot stoves, networking opportunities. It's all there for us. Find a way to get to Dallas. And if you need help, reach out. We'd love to connect with you. Also, please feel to reach out to me directly on Twitter at CoachSheets3 or by email Sheets, S-H-E-E-T-S, at ABCA.org. The challenge issued through these shows to put out tweets on where you are listening to these shows the pics of guys on their mowers, the shot of the car radio screen with ABCA calls from the clubhouse queued up. Those are awesome. Keep them rolling in. It's so great to see you guys investing in your development. Nothing excites us more here in the national office than to know our loyal members are lifelong learners. Plus, 
let us know how we can help you out, point you in the right direction, any way we can to serve our member coaches, always let us know. Proud to send a shout out to our great friends over at AstroTurf, the leaders in the clubhouse for the turf industry. And we cannot thank AstroTurf enough for jumping on board with us, sponsoring these shows. And we hope that if you're thinking about making some changes at your facility, reach out and connect with the folks over at AstroTurf. Contact Doug White out on the West Coast and Aaron Klotz here on the East Coast. They're your contacts to get the ball rolling downhill to see how the turf solution would work at your ballpark. Find more information on their website, astroturf.com. That's astroturf.com. And find out why AstroTurf has been ahead of the curve for over 50 years. Like I mentioned earlier, if you're one of the 6,000 plus coaches from around the world that decide to join us in Dallas this January, you're gonna show up for the very first speaker at the convention on that Friday, and you're gonna sit in front of Pat Casey the head coach of the Oregon State University Beavers and this year's NCAA Division I National Champion. It's tradition to open the floor for the champ each year, and we love to connect with those coaches to hear more insight into their banner season and how their terrific campaign fell into place. Inside this show, we focus on the championship culture in place there in Corvallis, how Coach Casey has built one of the premier college baseball programs in the Pacific Northwest, in Oregon, and the details inside the club that helped bring the program's third national championship back to campus. Hear how the Beavers have built and found consistency inside their program, how Coach Casey and his staff had found the right solution inside their locker room, and details into Pat's perspective that he's gained over the course of his time in the dugout and a career in baseball. Grab your pen and paper, pull up a bucket with us. Let's welcome in Pat Casey, head coach at Oregon State and this year's NCAA Division I National Champion. He joins our show on this week's Calls from the Clubhouse podcast. And get ready, coaches. This great show is coming at you right now. Coaches, thanks for dialing into our calls from the Clubhouse podcast. This week, we're going to connect with the 2018 ABCA National Coach of the Year, Division One National Champion over at Oregon State University, Coach Pat Casey. Coach Casey, thanks for jumping on the call with us. Yeah, happy to be here, man. We're excited to have you. And where we start our shows, Pax, we're going to get into a whole lot with you inside this discussion today. But where we always start is the ABCA experience over the years. You being such a loyal member, this is going to be your third time up to kick off our convention. Uh, but just talk through the, the ABCA experience, what that means to you, and then your growth as a coach being part of the fraternity. Well, obviously, the American Baseball Coach Association has been a huge part of so many coaches and their development and uh, the camaraderie that goes on there at those conventions and the people you get to see and eventually seeing people uh, that you watched coach being inducted into the Hall of Fame or finding coaches that you used to coach against that you're no longer in that conference or yeah. You know, you've moved up or there, you know, so just, and your old kids that you've coached that become coaches, either high school or junior college coaches or college coaches. So I think it's a great blend of bringing people that are, um, you know, inspired about their career, inspired about baseball and bringing them all under one one roof and, and having a, a, a good weekend. Do you got your presentation done yet? Yeah, yeah I got it. My, 
I think I'll work on my presentation when I'm walking to the podium. Exactly. That. I understand that. Well, we appreciate you opening that up. We know you're going to do a fantastic job. I can remember being in those seats when you won it in 06 and 07 and hearing you speak. And so, again, uh, we're excited about getting to our 2019 convention there in Dallas, having you kick us off. And I think for the sake of this conversation, Pat, and obviously our listeners, it's a great way for them to understand where you're coming from. What are the experiences that you've had on what levels, to what extent, as we lay out your career in baseball? So if you could, I know it's only a couple stops and a majority of your career being there at OSU, but take us through your career stops along the way and maybe throughout your career, Pat, open up the lessons that you learned? What were the important things that jumped off to you that really set your career down a different path? Well, I, you know, I started coaching at George Fox College and I was unaware that I was going to be a coach as I, um, you know, had been playing minor league baseball and mm-hmm. one day I'm a, a player, the next uh, week later I'm a coach. So right. <laughs> it was different for me to uh, experience that, but mm-hmm. uh, I had no, no opportunity to work for a coach, no opportunity to be assistant coach, yeah. you know, learn from some of the people that I would have loved to learn from. So I was lots of, and that had to do with the game itself and players as well. So mm-hmm. I believe that, uh, those experiences without those experiences, I probably would have failed as a coach at the division one level. Mm. So, you know, I, I just, I, I value my time at George Fox president there that was, uh, a great man that helped me develop into knowing what it meant to be a man, what it meant to be not only a competitor, but be a guy that could take care of the players. Uh, and that was something that I really didn't understand. About that. I understand that that would be one of my obligations would be to take care of players and see them advance and see them become fathers and husbands and teachers and coaches and, and just future leaders. So those things were very difficult for me. And, um, he helped me do that, and obviously, seven years there, my baseball coaching style or skill or whatever you want to call it kind of kind of developed itself. It was something that, uh, you know, I, I like I said, I didn't have anybody to teach me. I didn't have any particular pattern I was following. It was trial and error, and it was um, learn and learn from the mistakes you made, learn from the game itself. And I think the game is the teacher in many, many cases. So I was very fortunate to have that opportunity. And to have that time in order to, to um, develop into a coach, um, I was actually going to get out of coaching after seven years of making no money and uh, you know going working at a small school, and, and that that's sure. hard because I wasn't a full time guy. Yeah, yeah. I fortunately got the opportunity to come down to the state. Felt like that I needed to stay here for my family, for for who I am, for what I stand for, and for what our program stands for. Oh man. That's powerful. Okay, so a couple things I want to go into. You talked about the the crossroads of what uh, the majority of the small college coaches that listen to our shows, Pat, uh, they know exactly what you're talking about. You are wearing so many hats that sometimes you wonder if you're still wearing the baseball coach hat because uh, you have to do unique things to stay in the game and stay involved and stay obviously inside your program. If you could, those early years of coaching, you said coming out of minor league baseball and starting coaching right away, what was your motivation? Certainly as a competitor, you're out there, you're trying to develop, you're trying to win games. But when you really broke it down, you got home and you could look at yourself in the mirror, what was your motivation to coach and make this a career, that decision? But then has that motivation changed? Has that morphed into something different over the course of your career? Well, um, the motivation to coach was the despair of having nothing to do. I, I, <laughs> I played baseball player that they kept telling me one step in the big leagues and you know i i think that step was a long way from the ground so <laughs> i got released on june 22nd 1987 father's day and 
I think I got a call probably three days later from a guy named Paul Barry. And Paul was the athletic director at Jones Fox that wanted to know if I had any interest in being a baseball coach. And I said, absolutely not. Oh, wow. About three days later or four days later or five days later, I don't know, I was the head baseball coach at George Fox, and I'm still not sure why, other than I think the competitiveness of me wanted to stay involved. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, 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 you talk about tough uh, situation. I walked out to the field, and there was weeds that were chest high, and all the infield and dugouts were talking in cold water, and they were rotted out. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a facility, um, and, and I could see that that was going to be a challenge, and, and therefore, we immediately went to work on that. I um, had, um, you know, I was making, they offered me $3,000 a year to be the head baseball coach. So, you know, I, I realized with a family that I needed to go probably, you know, supplement that huge salary in some way. So <laughs> no doubt. I went to a guy that owned a pizza parlor and said, hey, you know, if you'll feed my recruits, I'll, I'll uh you know, put you in the media guide. And he said, we don't have a media guide. And I said, I know, but I'll get that taken care of too. So, uh, we went down and put together two pages and, um, you know, I brought my recruits in janitor. So I was a janitor working, um, five o'clock in the morning to, um, you know, make enough money to coach baseball, which I thought would last for probably for one year. I'd do it for one year and then I'd move on because I had a real estate license and, and I could have made some money in real estate, but I, for some reason, was attracted to the field and the competitiveness and the players and everything else. And so, therefore, I spent 99% of my time on the field, which meant that I wasn't making any money that's, in real estate. So, anyway, right. you know, I did that for seven years and move on. I needed to make, I needed to do something. So, if I was going to tell any young coach something, man, don't ever think that there is anything you are doing now that somebody else hasn't done. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't tell you how fortunate I was that I had the opportunity to be a janitor and to work for $3,000 a year. Believe that it helped mold me into who I am and what I wanted to accomplish and, you know, kind of really helped drive me towards those things that I was looking to accomplish. Wow. The experiences I had, they were phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And uh, the hardships were as, as difficult as uh, anything that I've ever went through. But I also knew that I had a passion to coach and I had a passion to help and I had a passion to develop. What I didn't realize was that the accountability and responsibility I'd have for molding young men's lives. And that's the thing that I think really kept me in the game. And somehow I was blessed, I believe, to um, have the opportunity to coach at Oregon State and uh, move on down here and get myself going in, a, in another direction. Let me dive just one more layer deeper on that question, Pat. Was there a moment, can you think of a moment or great dialogue that comes out of these podcasts where coaches talk about, and I've been there, and certainly there was a piece of you that might have been there that focused on winning and winning and winning. If I win more games, and that's the greedy mistress that we all chase. And then there's a moment where it really makes sense that if I really just dive into my players, if I make the relationships the most important thing that I'm trying to do here, success is going to follow us. And is there a moment that you can point to or a season where you reflected where you went, man, I've really got to invest my energy in this department and that is certainly taking your career down a down a different path. Is there a moment you can point to? Well, I think there was a lot of moments coaching at George Fox where I felt like, you know, that I was doing it um, because it was going to help me, um, you know, feed this competitive spirit I had until I, you know, started, you know, my career and whatever that was going to be. But it certainly wasn't going to be coaching baseball. Right. But like I said, once you start looking at the impact you're having on kids, and the opportunity to compete and stay on the field, you know, it came pretty evident that I enjoyed that. I think that um, 
one of the most difficult times for me was, um, you know, when we came down to Oregon State was um, when we got into the south. Uh, the north and the south were never a conference. They were, uh, uh, you know, um, split. And then in 1999, we became uh, an entire conference. So mm-hmm. the north and the south were, were one. And um, we got annihilated that year. I think we were 7-17 seven and 17 in league. And uh, I think it was... You know, my disappointment that I was the one that encouraged all the guys in the North to say, hey, we have to do this plane in the North. You can't RPI out. You can't go to region. Say, heck, 48-14 or something like that. Or 48-16-98. Didn't even get a chance to go to regional and, and uh, wow. beat UCLA and Arizona and USC. I think that that was a learning experience for me. I had to go back in and look at the whole thing and how do I want to evaluate what we do, what our expectations are. How are we going to um, handle getting destroyed and feeling like we can compete in the, in the conference as a whole? We, we, I obviously, you know, missed, misread what this means or what we have to do, what players have to make, and how we're going to lift everything else. And um, it was a humbling experience to be as good as we were in '97 and '98 and be as bad as we were in '99. So that was a huge turning point for me in my career and for what I thought I needed to do to help players and help develop the system of what we wanted to become wow okay outstanding let's go into just a little bit on this year's team because the crux of this conversation is going to revolve around championship culture trying to uh, maybe pull back the curtain a little bit on what's going on with the beavers you guys are such an intriguing program uh, and certainly one of the most prominent programs but this year's team you know 55 wins obviously getting the chance to dogpile in omaha you know, we're not necessarily focused on the players as much as we are the experience of the coaches and the experience that can help our listeners who are other coaches get better. So what made this team stand out? What what about this team made them special where, and maybe there was a moment where you said, man, this team has it. What is it for this group? Well, you know, we always talk about this player, that player has the it factor mm-hmm. and, um, you know, why they have the it factor is, is kind of that, um, uh, unknown thing that happens it's i don't know if it's innate or not but it certainly is something they show up with the the ability to attract other players to become better um that when you can get a team to believe that they can all be part of that it makes a huge difference um this team was talented um they went through adversity last year when um yeah we were 54 and 4 going to the world series which is crazy and um you know uh we ended up you know not winning the national championship and i believe that that was a uh, a motivating factor for them to get back and do this uh, again this year but to go ahead and finish but the mm-hmm. thing probably started after their freshman year in 2016 we had a club that finished very very strong in the conference um 135 games met all the metrics to be a division one NC2A playoff team and we're, and we're left out. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there was, it was, you know, for, for my career and knowing all the ups and downs, you know, it was probably the most, um, difficult thing I had seen a group of guys go through. And, and, uh, you know, we all decided that that was going to be something that we needed to respond to one way or another. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you that they responded to it together. And that was what was most important. And, uh, you know, you talk about the it factor when one guy has the it factor. That's you know that's a really good thing when three guys have it. That's really really a good thing. And when you get those guys to make sure the guys that are different talent levels, let's say, or, or different levels of uh, performance on the field or time on the field, that they're as important as they are. I think that changes the culture of how you go about 
coming to the yard every day and what you think of yourself as a player when you get a player that's not an everyday player that acts like he's an everyday player. That's it. Makes a big, big difference when he's called on. And um, our guys did that. I got to give a lot of credit to all the guys that, um, you know, that played every day that made the other players feel like they were elite players, made it a special, special atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, how you develop that doesn't happen overnight. I don't think you develop it by trying to do what other people do. I think it has to be genuine and I think it has to come from within. And I think that the players have to know that they're vested in one another, invested in the program. But most important, that's what the, the flagship of the program is, is it's not about one thing. It's about many, many things that become one. Sure. Again, a little deeper dive. I love that in terms of this 2018 team. Go back to 06 and 07. What were the things that made those two teams unique? What stood out? It's so interesting. Again, as more coaches talk on this show, Coach Casey – you know, every team's different. And sometimes you learn a lot by winning. Sometimes you learn through losing, but every team has their own unique personality and what drove them. Take us in those 06, 07 teams. What was the difference in those groups? Well, here again, you know, I think that if you look back at the 06 and 07 team, that the, the motivation started long before that, you know, in sure. 04, we did, we weren't invited to a regional in 05. We went to the college world series. We won our conference. We were picked uh, sixth, I believe. And, um, I think that those guys in that team in 05 were over, overwhelmed by, you know, going back there and, and being part of it and everything else, but they weren't um, not believing that they shouldn't win. And I think that there was a lot of people that thought, oh, this is a great story. Date goes to the World Series in 2005. They haven't been for 50-some years. They'll go in another 50 years, you know, and everybody yeah. would be happy, you know. Yeah. And so we didn't, we didn't, I don't think that we, um, we believed that. I thought that we, we went back there and I thought that we failed to be the team that we thought we could be. I thought we failed to um, play the way that we could play. And it wasn't effort. It just, we just didn't get it done. And so in 06, when we went back there, even though the country was thinking, you know, Oregon State's got a good little run of players and they went to the World Series. And mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to find out how they do next year when we won the league and did it in, in grand fashion and then won the Super Regional and, and walked into Omaha. Everybody thought, okay, repeat uh, time is great. Uh, lost our first game back there, and and at that time had lost five straight games in the World Series because they'd went in 1952, and then we had lost in 05, and then the first game in 06, we were going to become the first team to ever lose six straight games in Omaha, and we ended up winning it, and it was because our guys believed that they could win it. I mean, um, that team was absolutely built around toughness, built around confidence, built around um, sheer fight, sheer will because we had no other choice at that time um there was no way to say hey we're gonna sit back relax and play because we were up we're pinned against it from day one yeah the 07 team a little different story you know had just uh, just we'd lost almost everybody from the 06 team almost everybody and um you know we we had two really really important parts that was our shortstop and our catcher Mm -hmm. and we uh finished in the middle of our conference and I uh, went back to Virginia and won uh, back there. And our team felt like after we beat Virginia the first time, we had to beat them twice, that we would not lose a game the rest of the year. And when we went to the World Series that year in 07, we won five straight games. And it was unbelievable yeah. um, the way we played and um, how we won. It was so, I've never seen a team play with such rhythm and confidence and do it so easy, which was not what happened in 06 when we had to fight our way through the thing. Oh seven was just uh I think we went fifty three straight innings without a 
without an air. I don't, I, I, it was just, it was phenomenal. Um, the way we went through that thing and how, how the separation of scores and that thing. And, um, you know, I think we, I think we won, uh, every game by five or six runs or more other than one, one, five straight, never lost. And, um, so completely two different ways of winning it, but, um, it was certainly, uh, uh unbelievable, uh, opportunity as a coach to sit back and watch how there's so many different ways you can win if you, if you got the right guys. That's it. You know, the next question is really teed up for a conversation we're going to have with, uh, Tim Huber, head coach at Augustana, uh, South Dakota, just won the division two national championship, their first national championship. Uh, it was teed up last year when I had Kevin O'Sullivan in Florida, their first national championship. When you talk about the effect that winning the national championship has on your campus and the effect that that has on recruiting. Um, I think you could probably answer this in two parts. Did you, obviously everybody's excited. That brings a whole lot of excitement back to Corvallis, your fan base being so loyal and so proud to be part of Beaver nation. Uh, answer it in two parts. Maybe what was the effect that this year's club, this championship had on campus and recruiting and, and all the different dynamics, but then really back to Oh six, what was the effect that happened then? We didn't have the podcast rolling there, Pat, or I would have called you. Uh, but what was the effect that you had back in 06? Well, I mean, it was it was crazy. I mean, we, we rolled in here, and, um, you know, they had the downtown Portland. We flew into Portland, and, um, you know, 15,000 people in Pioneer Square, and Oregon State fans going crazy, and, um, the, and really the state of Oregon going crazy. Sure. It was an unbelievable opportunity to, um, you know, to – to, to showcase what 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 we had worked for, mm-hmm. um, our fan base uh, obviously just started. You know, the, the contribution level skyrocketed. What we were able to do, we put another expansion on the stadium. Mm-hmm. It elevated the what we thought of ourselves. I think as an entire university, as an athletic department, what our expectation levels would be, um, the possibilities for all student athletes. I just think it was off the chart. It was unbelievable. Wow! And just the pride that people felt. There were so many people that were so excited about the fact that they had something that um, they could talk about nationally, and not just say hey, there's a school up here in this little valley that uh, is, um, you know, a really cool place for for kids to go to school. It's a great college town, and uh, yeah. now all of a sudden you can hang a hat on a national champion where we have national recognition and people, you know, wearing their stuff around the country. So that part was really really cool. Yeah, I think that this year. Um, you know, I've had people tell me that it's it was the greatest World Series they've ever been part of. It was it, that they, they, as much as they loved watching 06, 07, this year was something that was just that they'll never forget because of the way that it went down and the way that we had been there last year, the way we came back. And then just so many people, you know, it's so hard to win national championships. Yeah, yeah. It's just phenomenal the effect it has on people on your campus, administrators, coaches, um, student athletes, fans, people that come to, um, uh, to, 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 uh, any type of, a, a function on your campus that come in there and say, God, we want to go over and see the baseball field. You know, you have kids come in for, for orientations and their families will go through on the tours. They'll take, they, they go through it just has a huge impact on wow. the, the entire university in the state of Oregon. Yeah. That's outstanding. Um, you talked about, you know, coming over from George Fox and the transition from coaching NAI baseball to now being the head coach of Oregon State. If you could take us into those moments in terms of arriving on campus and what was the current situation? What was the current climate that you walked into? And then how did you 
over time start to take incremental steps forward and, and really put your own stamp on the brand that would be Oregon State baseball? Well, you know, I mean, it's uh, first of all, when I got down here, you're you're uh, you're, you're you're extremely well aware of the fact that, that if you screw this up, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a long time before you get an opportunity to do it at this level because uh, there's not a lot of people out looking for coaches at Oregon State at that time. And the program was in good shape. They had a really good coach, um, guy that had done it for a long time. It's just that they didn't have the opportunity to go out regionally and play. It was pretty much everything was done up here in the Northwest. Yeah. And their program was solid, um, you know, but it was able to do that nationally just because of the nature of the conferences and who you played. And they played, you know, the majority, if not almost all their games against people in the Northwest. Um, They only got to go for a spring trip, let's say. So it's kind of, um, you know, unfair to for them to not have that opportunity because they were a solid program. They're a program that did it right. They played good baseball. We played them when I was at George Fox. So always impressed with Oregon State and their program. Mm-hmm. I think after I was here, I had to, you know, it didn't take very long for me to realize that Oregon State wasn't going to go anywhere in baseball if we weren't able to get out of the Northwest and compete regionally, nationally. And I, and I believe that. I also believe we had to do something with the facility. We had no facility to speak of. Players weren't going to come and play in a place that didn't commit to baseball, and I think that they had a hard time having our institution commit to baseball. Yeah. So we, we, we got fortunate. We ran into some people that were willing to put up some money and, 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 put, and build a stadium. And like I said, once we had the opportunity to play um, as a conference. The Pac-10 at that time was an unbelievable conference, and I can I can tell you that people that were in the six-pack were not excited about the fact that um, no longer was it going to be Arizona, Arizona State, Cal, Stanford, USC, and UCLA, that you were going to be going up north and playing. Yeah. And I don't think anybody dreamed that we were going to, um, especially after the first year, that we were going to have the impact that we've had on the conference. And... Uh, what it's meant to baseball in the Northwest and in particular Oregon State. So, you know, the culture here was good. Um, they played good baseball, but they did not have the opportunities that we had, and we needed to change that. Um, and, and, and once we started playing and people realized what we needed to do and how we needed to do it, players started coming in here with an attitude of, we don't need to beat people in the North. We need to beat people all over the country. That's right. In terms of your vision for the program, Pat, that first team meeting, um, and you're getting able to, again, get your hands on these guys. This is what I see. This is where we can go. How much did that vision start to change? Uh, and I'm, I'm guessing it was more early on, more regional, more local, and then that national talk started to happen. Like you said, the players are now coming with a different vibe, a different mentality. Did the vision start to change over time? Did it start to morph into something much bigger, much more grand in terms of getting Omaha? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I can remember in one of my first two years, uh, a kid was standing in front of the the poster that was made that had the schedule on it for the year. And he said something to the fact that I can't remember who it is. I believe it was Texas A&M. He said, Hey, look, we get to play Texas A&M. And I, I just kind of snapped and I said, are you kidding me? We get to play Texas A&M. There's going to be some players someday in this locker room that believe that they get to play us. Exactly. Said, hey man, we're playing Oregon state. That's good. I said, if you're in awe by playing anybody, you're in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that the, how we did things and, 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 and what we had to change and, and uh, the level of competition that we, we 
had to go seek out because people didn't want it. It's still still very difficult to get people to come to the Northwest and play if you're not in conference. Yeah. Um, it's just, um, you know, it's a long way to go, and and it's a tough place to play. And so, um, you know, fortunately, we've been able to um, go home and home with some people that had some some a desire to do those things. Georgia, we did that years ago in Tennessee, and it was, it was awesome. And so, um, anyway, it... it Everything changed, and I, I can tell you it changed in a hurry because of the fact that we believed in what we were doing, we believed in what we could do. Our vision for what our expectation level was not to, um, you know, go out and play baseball, and make sure we had a good year, and, and, and try to win the, the NORPAC. It was to be a national um, team that was recognized that had an opportunity to um, play at a national level every single year, compete for regionals, compete, compete to go that just gets stronger and stronger. And when the expectation level now, when a kid comes here, there's not even any talk about anything other than the fact of, um, you know, our, our, our goal every year is to go to Omaha and it's not a pie in the sky. It's not something that, um, you know, can't be, uh, you know, obtained. And it's, it's something that they believe in. And that certainly makes it a lot easier coming in the door when you have people that believe that's what they should be doing. And that's what's expected of them. And that's what they want to do. That's why they chose you. You know, that's why they came. I love this question because there's so much to take out. I've heard you say so many times standards and expectations. And I'm guessing that those are words that show up when you're uh, talking through the culture of your program and, and the expectations that you'll have for players and that they'll have for each other in terms of what it means to be part of your club and inside your locker room. Pat, if you could, can you define what your culture is? You said it's not just one thing. It's a lot of things. But what are those standards? What are the things that, again, if I'm a coach paying attention to this, I'm going, man, these are things I need to be more aware of or, or bring them back to our program. What would you offer? Well, I, you know, first of all, you know, there's a there's a long paragraph that tells you what standards mean, you know, and, and, and uh, it has to do what your employees or your players or your whoever it is that, that's working together, um, you know, the, 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 the level of performance that you deem acceptable as an individual or as a team, mm-hmm. and then what you will do to obtain those those levels of performance and what you do to honor the successes and what you do to handle the failures of those standards that aren't met. But, you know, standards are kind of like goals. You know, people make goals that mm-hmm. um, may or may not be obtainable, um, and therefore, they're either uh, worthless or they're they're worthy. One of the two. And what people have to determine is that when we create a standard, how does that standard really fit into who we are and what we're doing? Um, you know, if I'm a if I'm a baseball team and we set standards, um, who's going to hold us accountable to those standards? And um, how do we create standards? And and at what level of commitment are we willing to go to 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 meet those standards? And therefore. Uh, you know, I, I, I look at short-term goals and long-term goals the same way. Some of them are, um, it's very difficult to make long-term goals if you're not willing to do the short-term commitment and have a short-term commitment. Same with standards, you know, are, are standards something that you put that, you put that uh, this is what we want to do and we'll try to reach those standards, um, you know, when, when the season's over or, or are, the, are these standards that we expect that we need to, to accomplish? You know, I'm walking in the weight room at six in the morning and walking off the practice field at two in the afternoon. Or um, where do those standards come into play with this team? Mm-hmm. Who's willing to set those things? How will we achieve those those um, standards? And and will we actually all um, do the best we can to live up to those standards? And like I said, what are the consequences for not? What are the rewards when you when you when you accomplish them? So. 
I think everybody has to look at their own program and everybody has to look at their people. And I think that you start with that. You start with people. And there's just no, there's no getting around that, how you live your life, how you walk around campus, how you walk around the airport, how you come to the weight room, how you treat other people are going to get onto the field. So those standards have to be standards that are set for both on the field and off the field. I think that um, your best players have to live to the highest level uh, of those standards. They have to be part of the um, equation of how you create those along with the coaching staff and everybody else from the train, weight trainer to equipment guy to um, academic people to everybody else. So there's a lot of things that you can talk about standards that if you don't have a plan as to how those standards are going to be accomplished and what those standards really stand for, and are they something that really applies to what we're doing? They're probably not, not worth writing down on a piece of paper. But if they're standards that you want to live by and that you believe in and that your players believe in, then you better do everything in your power to meet those standards both on and off the field. How do you address these daily? I mean, I think that's, you know, certainly if you're feeding culture daily, you have a greater opportunity for that to not only um, to live, but to thrive. Um, how are you addressing these daily? How, how does this show up or, or look or sound as you guys are, are, are going through your season, going through your practices? How does culture rear its head? Well, it's, it's so easy to live up to the culture you want when things are going good or when it's a good day and when it's um, going the way you want it to go. It's those, the, 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 there's no, no surprise. The guy has a good day when he's got two hits, um, his first two at bats or no surprise. You have a good practice when it's 75 and, um, no humidity and, yeah. and your girlfriend told you she loved you before you came to practice. You know, it's, it's the day that it's not quite as good that you find out what you're made of and you're finding out, uh, what we're going to be made of. And I can tell you that if you look at the percentages of baseball of success, there's a lot of failure. And if you look at the days and the times and the numbers of practice and the number of games you have, um, you gotta, you gotta be able to, um, understand the, uh, impact of how those standards need to be applied every single day. And you cannot, um, say that they're going to go up and down with how we play and they're going to go up and down with how the day is. And they're going to go up and down how I feel because that inconsistency in how you, um, live up to those standards is going to, is going to be the same inconsistency you have on the field without question, in my opinion. So mm -hmm. if you create standards and you create a culture and you create discipline and you create things that you want to accomplish, the best way to make sure that those things are going to manifest themselves in the most important times is if those things are applied when the times are the most difficult when you're not playing. And like I said, those are a lot of times. Yeah. You know, if you go to practice and it's raining or you go to practice and it's cold or you go to practice and you've had a tough day or you go to practice after you uh, get done taking a phone, you go to practice before you got to go to study hall, you, those standards have to be, they still have to be there, man. You have to find a way to get through the distractions of things that are happening around you and still be aware of the fact that those things are part of life and that we're going to have to live up to those standards, whether life's been good that day or hasn't been quite as good that day. And so I think you've got to find out what am I comparing a tough day to? Hmm. What am I willing to do to live up to those standards? What am I, do what, what days are, are better for me to show somebody that, um, I can live up to these standards on a tough day, just like, uh, I can do it on a, on a good day. So those things are very, very difficult to, to quantify when, um, you know, you're trying to tell other people how you believe that um, 
you know, the standards have helped us and how we live up to them and what we do to live up to them. Uh, because, you know, you're not, you're not in anybody else's program. You know, you don't know what their difficulties are. I, I know everybody thinks it's, I, I'll, I'll never forget. I went to a convention one time and listened to a division one coach speaking. I was at George Fox. and I think it was somebody from, you know, Pepperdine or Fullerton. I don't know. But anyway, I was yeah. just sitting there like, wow, man, wouldn't it be nice to have practice uniforms? Wouldn't it be nice to have, <laughs> you know, baseballs that you could just use and yeah. do balls, da, da, da. And, you know, what I didn't really think about at the time was it doesn't matter if you have those things. It doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter if you have the best stadium, the best uniforms. None of those things matter if you don't have the best people. It doesn't matter if you don't have the standards that you've set and the discipline you've set and the expectations you've set as a team and that you guys actually bring those things together and you become a team. It's going to be miserable. So, um, you know, I never worry about those things anymore. You used to worry about the little things that weren't seemed important, such as, um, you know, hey, God, it'd be nice to be 75 in January. Well, it's not going to be 75 in January, <laughs> so let's, let's, Those are all let's figure out what we're doing in January. Oh, man, that's great. Are there any things that are inside the program? Again, if I'm a, I'm a guy that, that, born and raised in Kentucky, watched you guys win the championships in 06 and 07, obviously being here in the national office, being out there in Omaha and seeing you guys dogpile, are there any unique traditions that are – you know, relative to your team, things that the players do, things that the staff does, or or things, just elements inside your program that you think are unique that you would share that might help uh, open a door for a coach? Well, you know, if I started sharing all my traditions, you know, I'd have to cut down my chances of winning. That's true. Start doing those things, right? That's true. Um, no, I, 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 I tell you, I think that there's some things that we do as um, – as a, as a program that are unique or maybe that are, are, I don't know if you call them traditions or not, but I mean, we certainly do things in the fall that make it fun. Um, you know, there's always that deal about, um, what, what, what makes you worthy to wear the uniform. And so one of the things we like to do is play our inner squads for the uniform. So that if you win, you wear the uniform top the next day. If you don't, maybe you don't, you wear a t-shirt. So, oh. um, those things have always been kind of fun. Yep. I think our black and orange series in the fall is always sets the tone for how we want to compete. I think there's a tradition of, um, you know, the, the bond that we have in the wintertime, the camaraderie we have to get together and do things that are away from the field. Yeah. Uh, and then I think that what we're trying to do is make a huge tradition that, um, you know, destination Omaha is uh, something that um, is part of our, our DNA and part of our, our routine and part of what we do, um, how we leave the uniform. Um, we get people involved with what they want the uniform to look like. I'm a big, huge believer in that. Um, there should be something to, very distinct about the way your uniform um, uh, resembles your your team. Um, and for us, it's a traditional look. I love baseball uniforms. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're very traditional in what we do, but we also think that that gives us what we feel like is a blue-collar you know, lunch bucket type, um, club. Um, so there, there are probably many things that we do that, um, even the players would do that. Hopefully they do as a team that I wouldn't know, you know? So, yeah. um, anyway, uh, we, we, I've just been very fortunate to be around a bunch of guys that created a culture in a way of doing things that has been um, second to none in my opinion. And, and I've unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know how to look at that but I've never been involved in any other program where I wasn't the head coach and I've never been involved with any other program at any other level. So I was in AI level um, one program, division one level one program. So um, my, you know, I believe black and orange. 
That's it. <laughs> well, 25 years into it, you better. Um, you know, every coach is looking for consistency, Pat. You, you guys have found that in this last stretch there at Oregon State. You've really been consistent year in and year out. And that's what every coach is, again, in, in just a uh, an infinite search for is how to each and every year know, like you said, ingraining that into your culture that's a destination World Series. That's where we're heading. Or destination state championship. Um, how have you guys been able to find that? I'm guessing it's through your standards. But I'm, but if there's anything else to that, that you found it and you've been, more importantly, been able to hold on to it, what would you offer? Well, you know, I, I don't worry about the don't worry about the um, destination until you've, you've 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 had an opportunity to go through the journey. You know, a lot of people want to go to Omaha, and I think they talk about Omaha more than they talk about at two fifteen what we're going to be doing because you can't get to Omaha without um, doing it one step at a time. So, yeah. I think that people want to get in a hurry with what they're doing. I think people want to do something that somebody else is doing before they're ready to do that. I think people want to say, Hey, I watched, um, this team do that or that team do that. And, um, this is what we got to do. And maybe you don't have the horses at that time to do it in that fashion or do what they do. You know, I think people get stuck in, uh, um, trying to have one way of doing things physically when maybe you don't have that, that physical presence in any certain year. So yep. like you said, I think the things that you believe in as far as the the, the standards and the characteristics of how you go about your business and how you work and how you, you play the game itself are important. And um, I think sometimes those get overlooked when we try to get ahead of ourselves and start feeling like, you know, hey, I've been here and I, I, you know, I want to be in Omaha or I want to host a regional or I want to win a league championship. And the reality of it is you better start winning practice before you win a game. You better start winning a game before you win, you know, uh, your, 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 your tournament. So I just think that if you go back to the basics of what you think makes a man do something that he's capable of doing and how you get him to do it, you can find out he's gonna be a lot more successful. Mm. <laughs> you know, a terrific line, Pat, that came from, uh, an ABCA legend got spoke there out in Anaheim a couple of years ago. Dennis Rogers, uh, used to be at Riverside community college and we're at a barnstormers event we're sitting there and Dennis leans over and grabs me and he's, just you can tell he's always methodical. He's always thinking. And he says, you know, everyone's in a rush to tag themselves as elite. Everybody's in a rush for someone to look at them and say, man, he's great. But what everybody forgets is that you've got to be really good for a long period of time for anyone to ever consider you to be great. And that just sums up exactly what you just went into. Yeah, uh, there's, there's no question. And like I said, um, I think that people want something quicker than it's that they're willing to work for it because today's, especially young young kids in today's world, you can be anywhere you want in a half a millisecond with your computer or your phone. And yeah. Therefore, they're not patient enough to wait and to work for what they what they really um, want. They think they should have or they should get, and that's part of our responsibility as coaches is to understand that, figure out how do we do that. Hmm. And one way you do it is you don't let yourself get ahead of, your, of yourself too quick. And like, that's a perfect, perfect way of looking at it. You know, how can I be great if I haven't been good? How yeah. can I be good if I haven't been average? And that's right. Finding out what great is, is I always tell people the number one enemy to greatness is good. Yeah. Because, um, you know, if you just walk down the street and ask somebody how they're doing, I guarantee you they're going to tell you good. So everybody's good. And the, the, the key is to get to become great. You can't become great, like you said, until you've been 
been working at a, at, at a level of which allows greatness to manifest itself and people aren't willing to do that. They want to be great before they're willing to put in the time, the effort and make the commitment to be great. And, um, first thing you better do is define what that means. You have a clear vision of how to get there, a clear p- plan of how to, to implement that vision and, 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 and what you're willing to do to make it, make it happen. That's it. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, you mentioned your players and the look. Um, you guys do. You carry yourselves. I mean, from an outsider's perspective, it's a very blue-collar approach to the game. It's a very uh, – there's there's a toughness that resonates from your dugout, on the mound, in every position. What do you look for in recruiting? When Coach Bailey, Coach Yeski, and yourself, when you're evaluating prospective essays, man, when you're really thinking about the guy that fits into your program, what's that player look like? What's that person look like that, that's destined to be a beaver? Well, it depends on what the player looks like. If he's left-handed going 95, and we're looking for <laughs> We like that a whole bunch. He looks just know? like a beaver. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He looks black and orange. Um, <laughs> you know, I think one of the problems in today's um, recruiting um, frenzy is the fact that you don't have a chance to sit down and visit with the, the yeah. student-athlete long enough mm-hmm. to really know who they are because people are making commitments so early. So the physical part of it is something that has got to get so much greater than what people think maybe it should be right now because kid's 16 years old, 15 years old, and he, you know, hey, I, you know, I project this guy doing this, this, and this, and so you know, you're making commitments on the physical part much, much more than you are on the makeup part, and I think that that's where, you know, everybody has a hard time because if somebody in your league's making giving commitments when the kids freshman or sophomore, you got to stay in the game, so. Yeah. You know, we look for a guy that fits into what we do. I don't think you got to have the best players all the time. I think you got to have the right players, and and uh, and talent certainly comes into play when you get somebody that has that coming in. You're way ahead of the game, but sometimes you have to you have to create that within that player that's got a lot of talent that maybe never had to be a good teammate. Mm-hmm. And and the best way you can do that is to figure out within your system what takes players from being maybe what someone would deem very talented, but very selfish into being very team oriented. And that's, that's not, that's not easy to do, but we, we, we definitely look for, for talent. There's no question about it. We look for character. We look for people that want to play the game um, the way we like to play. We talk to coaches, we talk to um, parents and, 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 you know, you, you watch a guy play, you watch how he plays, you watch, you know, how he interacts, what he does with his teammates, uh, yeah. what his co- other coaches in the league think about him. But Open that up, Nobody that's foolish not to think you go out the, the, with the most talented guy. Right. Open that up. Open up the intangible side of that. I think that could be a good pull the curtain back as well. But more than that, you're educating a coach on some of the things that jump off the page. And this could be a, a traveler or a high school coach. Hey, man, here are the little things that you think that just go under the rug that actually mean a lot to us in terms of letting us know who we're dealing with. You got anything like that? Well, I, yeah, I think that I do. I think that you go to a game, you watch a guy go four for four, and he's up in the front of the dugout, and he's jumping up and down and being a great teammate, and he's running up and down, and he's hustling on the field, and they come to the next day, and it's the same tournament, and he's 0 for 4, and he's throwing his stuff, and he's sitting pouting, and yeah. maybe not the same guy. Maybe you got to feel like, okay, is that a habit? Is that is that something that is um, him, or is that just a bad day? Mm-hmm. I think you got to find those things out. And I, I don't think you just, you know, get rid of every guy that you don't think acts the way you want him to act on the day you're there. I think you find out a whole bunch about them. You find out their background, you find out about their family, you find out about what they um, have done in the past, what their coaches that have coached them in the past have said, hmm. and whether you feel like some of those issues are just the fact that, you know, when you're real, real good 
in, 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 at a young age, you don't, you don't experience a lot of failure. That's it. Yeah. And so guys come in and they've never experienced failure and, uh, all of a sudden they're experiencing failure, you know, you better know how to handle it and they better know how to handle it. But, um, you know, like I said, I think it used to be when I, as everybody knows, guys do their, their official visits, you'd have them on your campus. They hadn't made their decision yet. That doesn't happen anymore. I don't think a lot of mistakes are made with, with, you know, the guys that we've recruited as far as character and as far as work. I think that sometimes, um, you know, there's, there's that unknown thing when a kid shows up that, Hey, we're not going to recruit any other third baseman. You're the only third baseman in the country, right? No. And you're going to be competing against somebody that was also the best third baseman at their high school or junior high and their little league team. That's it. And sometimes the people that care about those kids the most are the kids that, um, are the people that maybe distract them the most from learning how to compete in that, in that environment. So, you know, I just, there's just so many elements to it that it's hard to pin, pinpoint, you know, what you'd go out and say, okay, that's the perfect guy to fit into Oregon state, or that's the perfect guy to fit into Florida. That, you know, I get it. You know, if Sully's out looking for a guy that's six, six and he's going 94 miles an hour, he can talk about his character after he's on campus, you know, <laughs> come on, <Right>. you know, <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that just, you know, the, the, so, so I, I do think if you go after Stephen Kwan, and he's five foot eight, 150 pounds. Right. You better make that damn sure that that son of a gun wants to come in here and play with his butt on fire and yep. willing to do whatever it takes to become a player. And he's going to fit into what you're doing. And you're going to surround him with some people that can offset the fact that this guy's going to be a spark plug. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, you know, we got, you get fortunate too, man, the draft, you know, people get hammered about their recruiting classes because people don't understand it. Well, you know, we had four guys that didn't show up because of the draft. Right. You know, you can go there and say, oh, guy, you know, why is, you know, how could, you know, this team ever have a, a bad year? Well, you know, if you look back and you say, okay, well, I had three guys that were drafted and signed and one kid that couldn't get in, he went to a JC, mm-hmm. had another kid that didn't sign, but his agent told him, if you go to a JC, you know, we'll get you drafted after your first year. There are a lot of things that happen that you can't, you can't control yeah. injuries. I mean, look at how many Tommy Johns across the country there are in the last 10 years. It's amazing. Yeah. So there's so many elements to that, that someone could look at somebody and go, yeah, you know, they got the wrong kid or, you know, a kid doesn't, the kid, I always, I get tired of people saying the kids have changed, you know, <laughs> most of the time kids haven't changed the environment around our kids have changed and that's changed how they look at things. And that's, it's changed how, what they are willing to do maybe, or what somebody's forcing them to do. You know, if you get a kid that's been, never been forced to do something he didn't want to do, he's not going to very likely want to do something he doesn't want to do. That's it. If you're not doing something that you don't want to do, you're not going to be very successful because the only way to be successful is to do something that other people aren't willing to do and do it more often than they're willing to do it. And so, you know, um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a fine line. You start talking about, you know, how did Billy Jones fit in that program when he doesn't look like he's a, a rebel or whatever, you know, I mean, come on, you got to you got to work with these guys. You got to be part of it. You got to understand. Nobody wants to take a chance on the guy that maybe is a little short on talent, but has huge character. And we're willing to do that. Mm -hmm. When you look back at, at the best people, the best teammates, the best uh, players, best assistant coaches, all the guys that are the best of the best that you've been around in baseball, what are the defining qualities that jump off to you? What are the things that uh, when you draw up on paper, man, this makes a great, person this makes a great teammate what are the things that you've experienced to jump off the page to you pat work ethic trustworthy loyal there it is work ethic 
trustworthy, loyal. And if you have somebody that works for you that's loyal, it's like it's like just having having the best peace of mind you could ever have. I have people that work for me right now that are loyal, and I know and I trust them. And a player that trusts you, and you trust a player, and that player is loyal. And that player is loyal to his teammates, he's loyal to his program, and he's loyal to his family, and he's loyal to his school. And he's loyal to the to the conditioning program, and you can trust that he is going to do what he tells you he's going to do. He's a trustworthy person, and you know nothing that I've ever done in my life. The good thing about me, the fortunate thing that I that happened to me is I came up in a family where the parents weren't able to give me anything other than love and and a, and a work ethic. If you don't have work ethic, it doesn't matter how much you want something because you're not going to do enough to get it. it. So if you don't have good work ethic and that isn't the foundation of how you go about your business, it's going to be tough to have success unless you're just extremely talented and it'll catch up to you there too. It might not catch up in college, but catch up with your professional ball. Mm. All right, man, I'm asking you to empty out your pockets. Last question I got for you, coach Casey, just advice for coaches, the things that are just, uh, you think are important that uh, most coaches need to be aware of. Think about, apply to what they do, kind of tried and true advice, what would you offer? Well, well, first of all, I, I love getting advice from other people because and, you know, I think that I'm a listener and I love, to, I love to learn. But I would just tell you, don't ever give in. Don't ever give up. Don't ever doubt. Don't ever create doubt and, and believe in who you are. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big guy. that I'm a, I like to learn. I like to do new things. But Whatever somebody's foundation is of belief, their core belief system, if you really believe in that, don't give in. Don't give up. Don't change because something went wrong because things are going to go wrong. There's just no doubt about it. Yeah. And so believe in yourself, believe in what you're doing, and believe in your players. And, uh, you know, take those beliefs off the field with you and build everything you do around your program around those same core beliefs, whether you're on the field or off the field. That's outstanding. Coach Casey, man, we are beyond thankful to carve out some time, get you on the podcast. And, and again, for our listeners, help them see what's going on there at Oregon state. Maybe they can learn from what you guys have gone through and take your perspective and experience back to their programs. Thanks again for joining on the call with us. We wish the Beavers nothing but the best and hope to see you out in Omaha again next year, my man. Absolutely, man. It's the greatest place in June to be in the world. So I uh, enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me and uh, the best to you, man. You too. Thanks for the time. I appreciate it, Pat. Thanks so much for dialing into our Calls from the Clubhouse podcast and connecting with these great coaches. If you're interested in more of these shows, check us out on iTunes hit subscribe and dive right in or head over to abca.org slash podcast and scroll through all of our episodes. A huge thanks again to the great folks over at AstroTurf for sponsoring this podcast. If you're looking at doing any upgrades at your facility, head over to astroturf.com. That's astroturf.com and see why they've been ahead of the curve for almost 50 years. Now, here at the American Baseball Coaches Association, we're here to serve coaches around the world. So let us know how we can help. Head over to our website, abca.org, for more information. Make sure you're following us on Twitter, at ABCA1945. You can find us on Facebook as well. And feel free to reach out to me directly at any time on Twitter, at CoachSheets3, or by email, Sheets, S-H-E-E-T-S, 
at abca.org. We'd love to hear from our loyal members and continue to find ways to keep growing the game together. As always, coaches, thank you for listening in and staying dialed into our podcast. Until next week, we ask you keep growing, you keep developing, you keep challenging yourself inside this game. We wish you and your club the very best, and thank you for what you're doing for the game of baseball. <laughs>